Welcome to Archery Talk 101 podcast, your guide to better archery skills. We'll bring you the latest tips, tricks, and expert advice, but that's not all. We'll also have interviews with top archers and industry professionals and reviews of the latest gear and equipment and much more. Hi, my name is Roy Cantor. I'm your host today on Arch Talk 101, and this is episode 149. We're, we're getting up there. Uh, just remember, if you're listening to this on Spotify, you can also listen to it on Audible. Uh, you can listen to it there free, and you also get a chance to watch the video if you go out to Arch Talk 101 Facebook group. There we have the video, as well as on my YouTube channel, Learn to Fix It Yourself. So with us today, we have Chad. Uh, we're going to talk archery and, and hunting and all kinds of stuff today. So we'll we'll get started here. Uh, Chad, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Well, how about if you introduce yourself and then tell us a little something about you. So my name is Chad Stevens. I'm from Utah. I actually am a guide here in Utah. And archery hunting is my goal to love every aspect of it. So you, so you got a um, a guide service you're doing in Utah. What do you what all do you guide for? Um I do lions, bears, deer, elk, moose, mountain goats, bighorn sheep, you name it. If it's if it's fair game, we go for it. That sounds sounds like a pretty interesting uh, aspect there. You get to go look for all the different animals. Do you, you guide archery as well as gun or just archery or I do archery, muzzleloader, and rifle. Oh, whatever weapon you of your choice, you get the yep. gun with you. Yep. That's pretty cool. How did you get started in guiding? Um, Just the passion of hunting. I mean, everything about it. And I love to take people and get them that first chance. Get them that trophy of a lifetime. That was the biggest part of it. Just taking out people that normally don't have that opportunity. And it's always good when you have somebody that knows the area. I know when you go to a new area, or even if it's in your own state, you know, a new area, you don't know what it's like and and to, you know, figure out what's going on. And I know when I first started, it was like, okay, you just got to spend days out there in the field to see where they're moving. And, you know, now with trail cameras, you stick trail cameras up and they can monitor it 24-7. So you can find out, it's like, oh, they're moving at night. But you know, where, where you're going to take and do all that. So now when we get there, we can just have you. It's like, okay, here's here's the best spot where they're moving this week. Yep, that's exactly it. And it gets you out in the field too, doesn't it? Oh, um, my wife says I'm, I spend more time in the field than I do at home. Well, yeah, that's to be expected, right? Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, you know, when during hunt season, when you're guiding, you're going to be there pretty much all day, don't you? Um, I'm usually gone from August to January, every day. Nice long season. Different seasons for different animals, I suppose, up there. Yes, I mean August and September's archery. October's muzzleloader rifle. Then we kind of move into our lion season, our late we do do a little bit of extended archery and that actually ends today so so now on to the next the next group of different weapons <laughs> yep 
So what got you started in archery? Um, just the passion of it, going back to your criminal stages, getting up close and, I mean, don't get me wrong, rifle, you still have to hunt for them, but you can take a 300-yard shot at an animal with a rifle, yeah. but archery, you're right up close, you know the animal a lot better. It's more back to your roots of everything. Yeah, if you learn how to hunt with a bow, it makes a gun easy. <laughs> oh, very easy. I know I've had had shots that was well within the range, you know, 100-yard shot at a deer, and I was like, that's too far away. Oh, I don't have my bow. I've got a gun. It'll reach out there, no problem. You know, and you're just getting that mental attitude. You know, it's like, I don't want to be 20 yards or less. And when they come beyond that, you just don't think about it. You know, you have to kind of change change the way you're thinking when you have you know, a long range weapon instead of the, the close range one. And I think it's a lot more fun hunting with a bow. Oh, it's very <laughs> much challenging. Yeah. <laughs> a little more reward when you, when you have that. So tell us about some of your, some of the hunts, you know, maybe one of the hunts that you went on uh, yourself that was uh, challenging. So this year I drew a once in a lifetime hunt here in Utah. It was my mountain goat. And I decided I was going to do it with my arch, with my bow. It was, it was rewarding to the max. Like it's a species that not very many people get to hunt. And I chose to do it the hardest way I could. <laughs> it was making your odds pretty low there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we, hiked in six miles scouted them out all season or pre-season got to opening day and everything just worked out to where we got there and within 45 minutes i had my mountain goat down on the ground well that 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 is some good pre-scouting isn't it? <laughs> it it was fabulous yeah and, and with the hardest weapon you could use to get them <laughs> exactly that and like I said, archery is, it's my passion. I love every bit of it. So I know you've, you've probably guided uh, uh, quite a few people. What's, what, what's been uh, some of the unique stories of some of the archers you took out? <laughs> oh, I, I, I've got plenty of those. Um, <laughs> I mean, we, I bring in a lot of Eastern guys here to Utah and they just don't understand for us, a uh, eighty-yard shot with their bow is really nothing. We'll, we'll take an eighty-yard shot all day long, but a lot of the guys back east are twenty, thirty-yard max, and it's just so interesting to see when they're you're like, "Oh, that's an eighty-yard shot. That's perfect," and they have no idea what to do. Yeah, if you don't practice those long shots, you you don't know how to shoot them. No, you don't. It's, I mean, I've had a very successful year taking people out this year. And it was, I mean, getting that guy in there from 80 yards down to 20 yards and just the sneaking. I and mean, elk is one of the hardest animals you'll ever hunt. Haven't hunted elk yet. <laughs> oh, it, it's a blast. It's, it's completely different than 
white tail or mule deer it's it's something else now how how does it differ from hunting uh, a white tail um most white tail you're you know you're sitting in your tree stand a lot of the time or in the ground blind an elk most of the time you can't do that you're spotting them half a mile to a mile away making plans to work down the ridge get the wind just right in thick or open country there's so many eyes watching you and having to stock in on them versus them coming to you we have to go to them little 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 more little more activity on your part then isn't it oh yeah it's it's definitely a lot more activity <laughs> a lot a lot of time spent you know hunting the animal where where you yeah you, you see them and then you you know where you're going and I, I know i talked to one guy one time that does a lot of archery and uh, he started out with rifles and went to archery and he he said uh, somebody asked him one time what's the difference between a rifle hunter and a bow hunter and his response was the time you spend hunting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. You know, 80 yard shot with a rifle, your hunt's over. You know, your pre hunt's the same time, your post hunt's the same time. It's like now with the archery, it's like you said, you 80 yard shot, you would have took it with a bow. But, you know, if you're not comfortable with that, you know, now you spend, you know, how many days hunting that animal <laughs> or hours? I mean, to get from 80 to 20 yards, it could take you three, four hours trying to sneak in there versus the rifle where you're, oh, it's done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, quite, quite a different uh, a different aspect when you're limited to your range. And, you know, I know I'm, I'm, I'm now more on the 20-yard the range. Uh, I can't see my targets out that far anymore. So, you know, those long 90 yard shots, it'd be a blur at the other end. It's like, okay, which part of this blurry image am I going to shoot? <laughs> yeah, that would definitely play a big part role in it. Yeah, before, you know, 40, 60 yard shots, you know, I, I practiced those a lot. So, you know, that wasn't too difficult, but now it, it's like, okay, there's a little vision problem. So I don't really shoot out those long ranges anymore because it's hard enough to see the targets at 20. <laughs> you know, especially if you put like a, I like to put like the little one inch circles up and shoot at those at 20 yards. You know, so the oh, great yeah. big target put the little bitty one inch circles. Well, the problem is now I can't see that one inch circle anymore. <laughs> so, <I don't> <laughs> yeah, that makes it a little bit tougher, but you know, when you're shooting at a single or five spot, you know, you can find the middle of it. You, it's still blurry, but hey, <laughs> Can't focus on the pin. <laughs> yeah. So what's uh, tell you say you have lots of stories of your hunts on there. Uh, I always like hearing all the different stories of what's going on and uh, some of the success stories and some of the failures and um, those are always kind of cool stories to hear. Well, this year, like I said, this year I've actually had a really good year. I decided this year I was going to use my bow with my turkey and I went out three days was watching this beautiful beautiful bird had him at 40 yards walking and I took the perfect shot put the turkey down 
my elk I shot this year was 83 yards in a rainstorm. It's got to make a heart on myself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Snuck in and put a beautiful lung shot on my elk. Um, my mountain goat, of course, was 70 yards. Beautiful shot on that one. And end of December, I'm headed to Florida to gator hunt with my bow. So, oh, that that'll be interesting. I haven't really talked about it. It's gator hunting. We'll have to get you back on after you go to Florida and we'll talk about gator hunting with a bow. <laughs> yeah. And right now I'm chasing ducks and geese with my bow. I just, for some odd reason, got to make the heart on myself. Yeah. Now, how's, how's that going with ducks and, and geese with, with your bow? How, how you set up for that? Um, we set up in a blind and I mean, it's your typical duck hunting just makes it a lot harder with your bow waiting until they just barely get ready to land and take them out. Been, been pretty successful on it. If I had a shotgun, it'd be a lot more successful, but yeah. of course, but now do you use like a, a fishing type arrow or what are you using? Yeah. For yeah, so I'm using a fishing type arrow so I can retrieve it a lot easier. Got to watch out because my, my lab, he loves to go get them for me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Can't get an arrow through it and he runs out and goes and grabs it and you got to careful that arrow. Yeah, he's he's gotten pretty close a couple of times. Uh, he'll learn. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's interesting. I talked to... Uh, one guy with Tom that he, he's shot his bow so much he ended up going pheasant hunting with his bow and was hitting him with the the bow and I I don't shoot that much to be able to get that good at it and you know for me it'd have to be a recurve because uh, I I don't shoot compounds fast it's just I my mental attitude changes between which weapon I have whether I got a long or a recurve. I got my compound or I got my rifle or my shotgun, uh, handgun. They, they're all my, the way I handle them and the way I shoot and my mental attitude changes depending on which weapon it is. And, oh, and yeah. I grew up with recurves because they didn't have compounds when I first got my first bow. They didn't exist yet. You know, I was probably five, six years after I got my first bow before even they, the first one was even designed and they're probably 10 years after that before you could even buy them and you know i just i can shoot a recurve fairly quick you know but i can't shoot compound because you know for me compound i come back with the anchor point kiss your butt and peeps i you know all, all that for for those and, and every time i pick up a, a compound with no sights on it i i can't shoot it <laughs> because it's a compound and I, I my mind changes and you know that's that, that's something that you know some people do good at that i I, I don't because I shoot them differently. <laughs> it, it's definitely been a big learning curve on that. It's it, it's so I can't even explain the learning curve of chasing elk and deer and stuff like that, where you anchor in and hold down on the animal. Where duck and goose hunting, you're like, oh, there it is, hurrying, pull back, quick. Oh. Barely put it underneath the bird, let her rip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's less, you don't have to worry about pellets in the in the bird then. No, <laughs> no, no. 
No, no, no lead shot in the bird on this one of those. <laughs> So what, what other uh, interesting animals have you hunted then? Um, I've hunted, uh, I've hunted moose with my bow. Went up to Alaska last year with that one. That was very interesting. Uh, we we tried bears and moose up there. It was pretty successful, but most of the time I'm pretty busy guiding everybody else to do it. So this year's been a been my year to go after everything yeah so if someone's interested in and having you guide them up for a hunt they're up in uh utah how would they get a hold of you um you can just catch me on facebook um pretty easy to get a hold of uh, my my outfitters great to get a hold of so and then i can i can leave you my phone number so if people want to call or text or whatever yeah, and I'll, I'll leave a, I'll leave all that information in the description so it makes it easier for them to find them. Just pull up the description of the, the podcast and, and be there to click on it and link on it. And... Yeah, it's it's a blast. I, I just, our tree hunting is my passion. My wife loves it. My kids love it. My wife's probably actually killed a bigger deer than I have with her bow than I have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's kind of nice that your wife and kids uh, like to hunt as well. Oh, yeah. What, uh, um, what, what's, some, what's some of the stories, you know, if your wife or your kids want to get on and tell some of their stories, they can, they, you know, more than welcome if they're around and want to hop on and tell stories too. Well, I, I know my wife's here that her biggest one she killed. We were actually going up to the trailer take making sure it was okay in the middle of the week and we decided to take her brand new car still had the temp tags in it got up to the trailer <laughs> everything was good but we we're driving out and she started freaking out saying stop 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 and there was just a beautiful four point right off the side of the road she got <laughs> out shot it and we decided, well, I guess we're putting it in the trunk of the car. <laughs> yeah. Brand new car, and you got you got a deer that you've got sitting in the back trunk. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the way to break in a car. Yeah, that was that was that was kind of unique where she uh, uh just say here, stop, 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 and here's one and get out and shoot it. And don't even have your truck, got your car. Brand yeah. new car that. Yeah, she was. She didn't even care. She was happier than all could be. That's pretty cool when you you have a brand new car and you don't care if it gets all bloody inside because you got a nice deer in there. Oh yeah. No, she supports it a hundred percent. That's good. Uh, what 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 kind of bow do you shoot? I shoot a Prime Nexus. And then my wife shoots the Matthews. I can't remember exactly which model it is. And then my kid shoots the bear. So we're not judgmental. We'll shoot whatever. Whatever whatever fits you good and you like, right? Exactly. Whatever feels comfortable. And that's, that's the big thing I try to tell everybody. 
you don't got to go brand new. You don't got to go the top name brands. Just shoot what makes you feel comfortable. Yeah, shoot what you can afford. If you if you have to spend, you know, a couple thousand dollars for a bow, and then you're you afraid to take it out, you might hurt it. Then it don't do you any good. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because they're gonna get beat up. Yeah, they just can't avoid it, you know, taking them out in the field and, you know, just take care of them and fix what breaks. Exactly. No, I my I remember my first bow was the PSE Nova. And that tells you how long ago that was. I sold lots of them. <laughs> that I mean, growing up from the age of eight till I was about 22, I competed all over the nation. Going doing the 3D leagues all over the nation. Had great support doing that. And so that just kept me going with my archery. That's kind of nice when you can you go to the, the leagues. The nice about those is in the advances is, is well, not really leagues, but the 3D advances, it does help you on. Um, you know, picking yardage and picking your spot. Oh yeah, I like going to them because it helps you. Okay, I can judge that yardage, and then I know if I put my pin here, it's going to go here. May not be the right place for the scoring, but but the scoring rings aren't necessarily where you want to shoot it in live animal anyway. Oh no, like you go to the ones and they're like, oh, this twelve ring is right there in the shoulder, and it's like, yeah, I, I like to keep mine a little further back. Yeah. Yeah. It, it helps not going through that shoulder blade. Yeah. Good shot for a rifle, but not quite as good for a bow. Although I seem to go through that shoulder blade a lot. No, it's, I mean, I usually shoot about 75 pounds. So I, I can, I can usually blow through a shoulder blade with my setup. So but I still like to set it right behind the shoulder. Yeah, a little, little softer spot. And yeah. Hit a nice rib or two, it's no big deal. Yeah, it's a... Uh, um, printer's going off, sounds like. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, um, it, it's it's kind of interesting all the different equipment out there and all the different broadheads and um, do you see a lot of them going up there hunting with mechanicals or mostly fixed blades or what are you seeing? Um, it's half and half. I I usually use a mechanical myself, but I went to the fixed blade. I don't know if you've ever heard of the crimson broadheads. Yeah, I I started shooting those these year this year. And they've produced really well for me. And then I have a friend that owns an arrow company that his arrows are fabulous. I haven't shot anything really any better than what he has. And the penetration, the kinetic force that they throw out, it's impressive. It's very impressive. That may, arrows make a, make a big difference. You know, I, I always, I always uh, got the straightest shafts once I started, you know, getting a little bit more into it uh, back when they were before carbons, 
you know, I get the the aluminum, the double X 78s, which is a zero zero one five straightness. So uh, that's the straightest you get aluminum. And I would get new set every year right before hunting season. And I'm shooting brand new, I shoot brand new arrows at the deer that just shoot them enough, get them tuned in. So I know where they're going. And then I hunt with them. So, you know, I've got a brand new arrow. I'm shooting at that deer, but I have the best grouping I can get with those arrows when I start for hunting. And, and, and now I shoot, you know, with the, the comp pros, which is a 1000 straightness, you know, that's what I don't have anything that I shoot less than that. That's what I shoot. And I, I figure the straighter the arrow, the tighter the groups, the tighter the groups, the less I have to worry about errors in my, my judgment. Exactly. <laughs> Get down to the little details. Well, and I've, I've had, uh, I had one, one guy, one of my, my shooters, when I had my store, he was shooting, I don't know what the Beeman hunters or something as a three thousandths, I think it was straightness and, you know, grouping really well, you know, not holding them all in the X ring, but, you know, still a good, decent group. So I says, Jim, shoot, shoot some of my arrows because of the same draw length. He's just shooting left-handed. I shoot right-handed, but arrows don't care. Um, so he shot my, a few, a, a group of my arrows and amazing how much tighter his group was just from yeah. a straighter arrow. I, I get asked all the time, people, well, why can't I just go get the Walmart arrows? And I'm all like, it, it's just not worth it. Your air, your grouping can go from an eight inch circle. If you spend a little bit more money down to a two inch circle. Yeah. Just, just off the arrow. Well, and then too, I, I had one where I, I showed one of the little videos I did oh, probably a year and a half ago. I've got some arrows that were Robin Hooded. And I showed the difference in penetration between the cheap arrows and the expensive arrows. Now, I've got mine when I'm shooting my PSE arrows at 70 pounds at 20 yards. It only went in just a few inches. I got some of the cheaper ones. I probably not shot at 70 pounds. Uh, they weren't ones I shot, but most people shoot 60. And amazing, they went through about twice as far into the shaft. And that's just a difference in quality of, of good quality arrows and the cheap Walmart ones. Um, yeah. You know, I had a friend of mine, he'd go buy all the clearance of the Walmart arrows because they was shooting pigeon in the barn. So you get about one shot, maybe two shots, an arrow shot anyway. So why spend high dollars on it when you just you're shooting up in the beams so you get the pigeon or you hit the steel beams? So <laughs> you know, so he'd go buy all the clearance ones because they were good for one, maybe two shots anyway. Um, but I wouldn't do that with arrows I shoot because you know, now they're yeah, I don't know what a good dozen of uh um you know, the, the good quality straight ones cost now, but they're they're probably pushing easily 10 bucks an arrow. Oh, most of them are more than that now. They're closer to the $20 mark. <laughs> oh, closer to the $20 mark, yeah. Yeah, so. I haven't bought arrows since, uh, well, when I had my store, I closed it in 2004. So uh, I have plenty of arrows, so I'll never have to buy arrows again. <laughs> yeah, but like I said, my buddy's arrows, surprisingly we've we've tested them and we've shot his we took his wife's frying pan out 
and decided to shoot that multiple times and it it went through 10 different times and never hurt the arrow one bit i know i've take i took when, when i had my store i uh it was somewhere i did i don't know what i did but i ended up i i shot one of my arrows with field tips on it through a commercial steel door it went up to the flushing and did not hurt the arrow at all um because it, it actually penetrated through then one night I was, I was shooting my broadhead target when I was at the store and I was tired. I messed up. I missed the target, hit above the whole thing, hit in the concrete block wall. And I, that's my muzzies. And I go walking up there because I heard it hit and it's like, oh man. So I went up there. The broadhead was sticking in the concrete block. There was half the insert was on it and the other half was laying, the shaft was rain, laying on the, the ground. And it cracked it back about an inch. That's all it did. At 70 pounds at 20 yards into a concrete block. Yeah, it's these carbon fiber arrows versus those aluminum arrows is it's quite interesting to see how they did it. Yeah. And there's there's a lot of different grades of, of carbon out there. And you know, there's a lot of things you can do to get your best performance out of them you know you can float them to find the heavy point on them because they'll sink to the bottom and you know you can go through a whole bunch of stuff and i took one time when before carbons were out i took my set of aluminum arrows and i fletched them all up stuck them on scale weighed them wrote on the, the shaft what it weighed and then i took all my points that let you shoot 100 grain tips uh, bullet points so i weighed all those got all those measured out and then i i matched so the total weight of the shaft was as close as I get to being the same. I'm filing the back of inserts to, you know, to, to get the weight there. I got the whole dozen within half a grain. Well, that's impressive. And I did it once. I would have charged double the cost of the arrows to do that. <laughs> I never did it again because it it I just did it. Yeah, and an engineer, your mind thinks about those things like that, and you know, I figure they're if they're all exact the same weight, it's going to fly the same speed. Now there might be slightly difference in you know where the weight is. You know, the tip might be a little bit lighter on one, a little heavier on one, but I I just got them all exactly the same. So if I'm sending it at seventy pounds at twenty nine inch draw length, I'm going to exert the same amount of force into every shaft which means they should fly exactly the same. Now, minus fletching variations in there, but yeah, I, I didn't fletch with one jig. So, um, you know, I had my store, I had uh, eight bits and burgers and 12 BPEs and a Joe Jan. So, <laughs> and, and, you know, come before a hunting season, they're all full, all busy, you know, constant day and day and night, you know, for probably three weeks to a month. <laughs> Fletching oh, arrows. Because yeah. when I had the store, I just bought raw shafts. I didn't buy any fletched arrows. Everyone was a custom made arrow. You know, oh. you come in and it's like, well, what colors you want? You want you want four inch veins, five inch veins, uh, you want four or five inch feathers, uh, what colors you want, you know, and then you'd pick out your colors and and you know, that way everybody had their own unique thing instead of going to stores now. And it's like, okay, I get choice of two orange and a white. Or two white and an orange, you know, or sometimes you got different colors, like you, you whatever it is. And 
I, I kind of like, you know, picking my colors and my minor blue and silver. <laughs> matches the strings on my bow, matches yep. my sight, everything. So well, I, I definitely you can get them all matched, you know, that way it looks like it's all all designed to be together and you know the deer don't care. No, the, the deer don't, don't care. It's just we do. <laughs> we got to have a little show on our equipment. A little show. Yeah. Well, and then um, I've got, I did a set of strings. Well, actually a couple set of strings differently when I made them. Instead of, you know, the normal twist. They still had yeah. twist in them, but they were braided. So when you look at the string, they form little V's as you're going up and down the string. And I I did it on on a, a buddy of mine's bow, and I, I guess I did it on, didn't remember doing on on this other guy's, um, his wife's bow, and he started making strings. And yeah, he's he's going to see this podcast, um, but he's like, well, how do you how do you do that? Because his daughter went on made the same way. It's like, how did you do that? So I have a video going to come out here as soon as I get it put together on how I made those just so he can make the strings. And it's kind of different, you know. I actually did a three-color braid on one. And you know how you braid strings together, you know, one over the other and back and forth. And so I took three colors and I braided them that way. It was like three different kind of camo-type colors, you know, tan, um, a dark green, and I think maybe a light tan or something in there. Um, I forget what the colors was, but... Uh, you know, that forms a little bit different type of a string as well. And I had that on my bow for quite a while until it finally broke. How well does it work out? Does it change with it being braided versus twisted? Does it change a whole lot? Or Well, what you got to do is is you got to realize it takes more string. Oh, yeah. It's definitely going to take so, a little So if you need a 102-inch string, if you start with 102 inches, by the time you stretch it, you're going to gain a little bit. But by the time you braid it, you, you're down too short. So, and then you twist it on top of it. So you got to figure out, okay, how much to go here? And then once you get it braided, hopefully it's not too long. And then um, then how much can you twist it? Because you can still twist it on top of that. So that's, that's kind of one of the things that I'm going to try and work through when I create that video. Is like, okay, I'm going to make a string this long and there's a couple of different ways of making strings. A lot of them just take the strings, like the, the tail ends, just leave them hanging loose and serve over them. But then they go in through it and they're putting the string under 100, 150, 200 pounds of pressure and letting it sit for a day or so to get all the stretch in it. Well, I tie all mine together. So it's one continuous loop, maybe different colors. And then when I have it measured out on the jig, those that don't know, the jig has... Uh, two prongs that stick up, and then you can twist them to serve in between them to serve the end loops. And I will put it as long, far as I can and then lock them in and then turn them, which puts a lot of pressure on them. So I'm putting a lot of pressure on it as a single strand. So when I get done making my strings, I, I've never pre-stretched them, you know, or post-stretched them after I made them, but I don't have any trouble with my string stretching because I've already stretched them in a continuous unit. So as you're breaking your string, you're wrapping it around, you tie the ends. Each strand has a different amount of pressure on it. Depends on how tight you wrapped it. And then when you get to the end, how much did it relax back on that last loop? So that's what you're trying to stretch out. You're trying to stretch all those strands 
So they're all the same tension. But when one continuous strand is tied together, so it's one big loop, as you put pressure on it, it's going to take the tension and even it all out before I even start serving it. So that, that's why I, I do mine a little bit differently. And, you know, there's all kinds of different string materials out there. One of the new ones is the uh, 452X. Uh, that come out after I got all mine. I got 8125s that I make my compound strings out of. And I'm not switching because I got so much of that material. I could make a new new string every month and still not run out of material. <laughs> I'd have to have new serving material because I don't have as much of that, but the actual raw string material and there's tons of different colors. You know, I, oh. I was I was doing one where I was trying to figure out okay, what what kind of colors um can we can we use? Um I was doing some videos on how to make strings and working on a bow and now those of you that are listening to this you can't tell but i have let's see where the um here's one i did with um kind of a chartreuse green and a um kind of a uh it might be mountain berry and that turned out kind of a nice little color uh here's one i did with uh um, copper and black um then here's one I did with purple and pink. Can't really tell the purple. Well, you can a little bit on, it looks like on the camera anyway. Um, and then uh, copper and, and blue. And then there's some other ones too. I, I think they fell on the floor here. I had them hanging on my one knob on my, my desk. But, you know, that's kind of the different colors you can do. And there's, there's probably, BCUI has oh, probably about, 15, 20 different colors that you can get. And in multiple different different types of strings, each type of string has string has different characteristics. Some are really thin, so you have a lot more strands. This one here is um, I think it's like 14 to to 18 strands is what it's recommended. I put I put them in the middle, put 16. Uh, 18 strand makes it really fat, and some of your cams you just don't have big enough track for them. So one of the things you can do when you're making your own strings is so I've seen some where they don't completely serve it all the way around the cam. So now you've got part of your string is not covered by the, by the serving. And then so I can extend it out. Some extend it out so far, you've got four or five inches extra serving. Extra serving is going to slow your bow down because it's extra weight on your string. So you can do that. I always serve the end loops, not like I did on these sample ones, because I didn't want to go through the work of, of that. You know, when you have uh, just the loose strands, you can get your strands off. Like like here, this one's separated out. You got to kind of put them together. So I always serve them when I'm making a real string. I always serve that loop so I have a nice nice place to get them on there. Because I've, I've put some of those on and you look at it, it's like, ah. I missed one of the strands. So you got to put it back in the press, put it back on there. And sometimes they'll get twisted. And yeah, I, I like to serve them. So you can kind of customize them when you're when you're making strings and kind of fun to do. <laughs> I'm not yeah. as fast as I used to be at making strings, but you know, I I got where I it was less than an hour for me to make a string. And I haven't had one guy come in, called me up about 10 minutes before we closed, said, do you have a string for a bow or can you make one? Because he knew I made strings. And I was like, I don't have one because I got no strings in stock. 
you know, that anybody ever used because there were ones that were probably 15 years old when I got the store. And I says, okay, well, come in. He says, you know, I said, close in 15 minutes as well. I got to shoot tomorrow and I need a new string. He's like, okay, well, come on in. So he closed up. He come in and I think it was a dart and bow. They have a skinnier track than most of your camps. So you make the normal one and it's too fat for it. So I started making it and I got it served. Well, no, it's too fat, won't work. So I threw that string away, made a new one, two less strands in it, and then put it on there. And by the time he walked in, it was not even an hour and he's walked out with new strings. I need an archer shop like that around here, man. <laughs> That's some service. Now, now, because I was willing to stay after we closed, and you know, make the string for him. Otherwise, I'd have just made it the next day. Yeah, you know. But he needed it for a shoot he was going to tomorrow. And he had to go down to the range and get it shot in and, and make sure everything is all set up because new string may not be exactly the same length because it's made to the length it's supposed to be, not necessarily the length that it was. So that might change. Uh, new strings can act a little bit differently than worn out strings. Uh, so you got to shoot and make sure things are right. You don't go to a shoot and not know where your sights are. <laughs> you always oh, yeah. check them out. And, yeah. you know, that's, that's kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, how you can do that. And I had one, one guy come in, call me up and he says, I, I, can you set my bow up to shoot two arrows at once? Cause there's two other shops in, in town. They all tell him, no, this flop, no. And I says, well, why do you want to do that? It's like, well, because he did. I was like, well, you can't afford me while I'm open. So show up at about the time closing and we'll go play. And, and <laughs> it wasn't an it wasn't the center side design riser. It was used the stick-on ones as an older oh. bow. So you could use so I put two stick-on rests on there and we we're playing around all kinds of stuff. And what we found was depending on how you put the loop, because when you shoot a release. Where you how you put the loop on makes a difference on whether or not you'll be consistent grouping. And the way we ended up doing it was able to shoot an arrow, and the difference between each group on the distance between the arrows was about an eighth of an inch. Shooting two arrows. Now they're half as fast as they would have been with one. But what we found was so we tried putting a loop in between the two arrows. We got we could not group them, they were just all over the place. You know, we tried below and above it. What we found out, the only way to get works, tie your knot above the top arrow and below the bottom arrow. And by pulling directly behind both of them, we got a consistent grouping. And from that, we, you know, doing all this, we realized the best way to put a loop on is not with a knocking point. Not Don't tie any kind of a knot or anything in there. You're loop goes one knot above the arrow one knot below the arrow and you have them so tight against it that there's no slop in the arrow and now as you pull back and release that string is going to put the force directly from the knock to the tip and the reason you want to do that now you, of course your bow has to be set up to be a center shot set up as well as your your height needs to be set such so your level on that but I like to equate it to uh, take a pencil, set it on a uh, a table, 
and take your finger and push on the eraser straight towards the tip, your pencil will go straight. Now take your finger slightly at an angle and push. That pencil wants to just rotate. That's what you're doing to your arrow when you shoot and that is not lined up perfectly behind the knock. That's that, learned over the years. <laughs> that sounds very interesting. I mean, that's some trick shooting right there. Set it up to where you can put a playing card with two balloons on each side and pop both balloons. And <laughs> Yeah. Well, the guy was a motivational speaker, and he wanted to use his bow to get the kid's attention. So, it, like, put up two balloons up there and then shoot and pop both balloons. You get the kid's attention. Oh, for sure. That was the whole reason for it, was he wanted to get their attention. Shooting one arrow is like no big deal. Shoot two arrows and hit two different targets. Now, that's a little bit different story. That took some engineering right there. Yeah. That one now, I don't think we'd be able to do it on a new modern bows with the uh, center shot design riser, because I don't know how you get the second rest on there. No, I don't think you could. I, I think I've seen where a guy had shot four arrows out of it at one time. But it's going to take a special rest in order to be able to do that. Yeah. And it was it was pretty well the same concept of what you were just describing. And he lined up four balloons straight up in a, one on top of the other and took out all four balloons with it. I mean, I'm in my mid-30s and I was I was impressed. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's some there's some shooters out there that are, are really good. I like I like watching um this one lady. She's she's normally on TikTok. Um I, I think her, her handle's Freedom Feathers. Um Jennifer Delaney, I think is, is her name. And she shoots recurve and she'll throw up aspirins and shoot them. She'll take playing cards and shoot them on the edge. She's I seen one where she had water dripping. And shot the water drop as it dropped, um, all kinds of stuff like that. She taught herself how to shoot really well, and and it, I just like watching different things that she's doing, and you know, take a pop can and flip the top up on it, and shoot the arrow through the the hole in the uh, the pop top, and you know, all kinds of stuff like that. It, it's it takes lots of practice to to get that good with a, a recurve. <laughs> oh yeah, now, you, I don't you think shooting long range, but. I remember the recurve days where we were shooting 20 yards was our max shot and we were doing all sorts of tricks like that. Shoot a axe head with your arrow, split your arrow and hit the balloons. That was that was quite fun. Expensive, but fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now now that I think the wood shafts are about as expensive as the aluminum shafts were and and carbon. They're they're not they're not cheap to wood shafts no. anymore. No, they're not. So, yeah, what's um, what's probably been your most memorable hunt you've been on? My most memorable hunt. Um, that would have been my oldest son taking him out on his first archery hunt, and with it was on mule deer. We got permission from one of the landowners to go hunt his cornfield and kind of did it like our your whitetail hunts where you waited for him to come out and feed and ambushed him. 
and just watching the excitement in his eyes just like glow when he pulled back his bow and took that shot and that that right there was probably my most memorable hunt I can think of and just and that really pushed me with the guiding is just seeing that glow in his eyes and knowing that it, it's something that he'll always do yeah it's it's kind of nice when you you take you know your kid or somebody else out for their first hunt and I know some of the um things that I you know with my my oldest son you know I was telling him a, a story and he don't remember it anymore anymore but it was it meant you know I, I remembered it you know was was out hunting in the rain and it was supposed to quit raining and he was with fairly close to me and the other guys hunting with he was there and and it's like it was supposed to rain by 7 30 still raining eight o'clock still raining eight thirty still raining nine o'clock still raining so you know we're we're not going to sit any longer in in here. It's 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 not going to stop anytime like the the news people are saying, and so we decided to get down. My son and I walking down the hill, and here's this doe standing broadside to us, probably twenty twenty five yards away. And I stop and I tell my son, "It's like okay, get your arrow ready because they're going to look at me. They're not seeing you behind me. They're looking at me." And you get ready, and then you know once you're ready, just kind of step off to the side and out and then you take your shot well by the time he got ready it had walked off but you know that was that was kind of interesting you know we we go in there and we're getting ready to leave and and here's this deer and we weren't we weren't hunting on the way out we hadn't seen anything and they're like well let's just let's go we're getting kind of wet and <laughs> we want to we want to just go and and you know that that was kind of interesting and but he does remember his first one we stalked. We've seen this deer coming and he had to stock up on it. And so he's sneaking up to it. And I just kind of stayed back because both was trying to get up there was going to be too difficult. And he gets said here and, and he didn't come to full draw when it was still behind the evergreen tree. So it steps out. Now he can't draw, but he got within bow range. He just didn't know because he was just new at it. He didn't know that you come to draw before they step out. So you're already at full draw. And you know, that was that was kind of interesting. You know, he, he he did sneak up close enough to him to get the shot. It's just he didn't draw when he needed to. Oh, that's just a learning curve. Yeah. Well, he's done a lot more hunting since then. So he's gotten a little better. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's. Some another one of my memorable ones is taking taking the kids out bow fishing, shooting the catfish and carp with your bow, and walking down, finding shadows, and waiting for that fish. Just the reflections, learning that learning curve right there, trying to shoot through water. Oh yeah, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever done that one, but you don't yeah. aim right at. You can't aim where they're at because that's not where they're at. No. So. I had somebody then, ask me that one time. I, said, I actually created a little video and it's like I, I took a glass of, of water and stuck. Um, I I don't know. It's a pencil or something in there and showed the picture of the side and that goes down and jumps over. And as soon as you can see where it hit the water, it just shifted over. It's like, see, they're they're, they're not where they're supposed to be. And depending on how deep they are, 
and your angle, it all changes all that. So where do you aim? Yeah. You know, you got to figure, okay, are they on the surface? Then just aim right there. If they're down, are they down six inches, a foot, two foot, three foot? You know, the further down they go, the further off you have to aim. And... Another learning curve. <laughs> yeah. Well, nicely about it is if you miss, you pull your arrow back and shoot again. <laughs> yeah. They're pretty easy to retrieve with that fishing system. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think it'd be kind of fun sometime to take take the fishing bow out and, you know, those um, the Asian carp that jump. <laughs> that would be... Yeah, that that would be a, a challenge. As long as they don't jump into your boat, I, I've seen videos of guys taking with shotguns, and, and when they jump up, shoot them. <laughs> They're just so so invasive, you know. You, you need to get rid of them, and however you get rid of them, really doesn't matter. Baseball bat, shotgun, bow. Yeah. I don't know how they are at eating. I don't know if they're like any of you know regular grass carp or um, or not. I've Never talked to anybody that's ate one. Um, from what I've heard, they're they're not that great. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people think carp's not that great, but depends on how you fix it. Yeah, that's true. I smoked a carp one time. I forget what I used for wood. I, it wasn't hickory because I don't go with good with fish. It's probably a a, a plum. Um, and like I was eating it, and I was like, man, this almost tastes like ham. <laughs> It was actually really good smoked. Uh, I'll take your word on that one. <laughs> <laughs> you you go to some, we've got a couple of restaurants around here. Well, one's closed up, but the other one, you can go get catfish and carp. And, and the, the problem with the one when I had I went to the one, um, they took the carp and they scored it where the bones were at. So instead of getting around the bones. So now then you have the piece where they scored around with the bones is just fried to a crisp. And, and you have to get in the meaty part to get to anything that's not like fried to a crisp. And it's like, yeah, I wasn't too impressed with it. It's like, I fixed better carp than that. <laughs> well, personally, I'm not a big fish eater. So that's, that's on my to-do list of not to do. <laughs> on your not to do <laughs> is eat fish <laughs> yeah no i i like my wild game i'll take wild game any day of the week <laughs> yeah and it's it's better than eating beef you know i've I, there there for a while it's, i had so much venison i was eating i wasn't eating any beef and every time i'd have beef it's like oh this tastes nasty what is this oh that's just beef they got completely different flavor <laughs> oh yeah Whitetail is one of my favorites, though. I that is a, I really enjoy that one. That is good. Now, have you had? You say you got moose up there. Have you had any moose? Yeah, moose is really good. It's I I'd still say whitetail is still better than moose, personally. I uh, I went up to Canada moose hunting back in '95 and and got a got a moose got a, a cow moose and i thought that was that was the best meat <laughs> by far better than the white tail and a whole lot more of it too <laughs> oh yeah there's a big difference there <laughs> yeah yeah almost 500 pounds of meat 
Well, when you take you take one back strap and you off the moose, and it's about equivalent to your whitetail meat wise. Yeah. Well, and uh, I was amazed at how big the liver was. You know, I I didn't keep the the liver and the heart from it because I don't generally eat liver, and you know, so it draped over my arm. You know, so it filled probably from my wrist, but almost up to my elbow. And it draped over it and it hung down probably six or eight inches on both sides. And it was well, probably an inch and a half or two inches thick. I don't remember now, but it was a big hunk of meat in that liver. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's see. Then with our lion hunts that are coming up here too, I, one of my favorite things to do is take them with an archery. It's it's definitely more crucial to make sure your shot placement is perfect. But that that's our next season right now is getting ready to get rolling on our mountain lions. Now, how do you how do you hunt the mountain lions? Um, I have hounds. I have a pack of hounds that I use. Oh, okay. We'll go, we'll go out find fresh tracks or old tracks doesn't really matter to us and we'll just release the dogs wait till they get it treed and make our death march up to the tree get in a good position and take them out do they have a problem with mountain lions up there or is it um depends on who you ask the guys that hunt lions say no but the deer and elk hunters say yes <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah because mountain lions care a lot of deer and elk that's what they claim. But the guys that actually hunt lions are, we all don't think there's enough of them. Have you ever kind of analyzed what they've been eating? Um, so they, they usually will pick off your weaker animals that normally wouldn't survive. Your older deer, your crippled deer, they eat a lot of turkeys. But they, they they don't pick off as many animals as people claim they do, in my opinion. So and and it really is just a lot of deer. They don't really mess with the elk as much, unless, like I said, there's injured or something, and then they'll easy yeah. meal. Easy meal, yeah. They're an opportunist. If it's there, they'll take it. <laughs> No, just like anybody else, if the opportunity is there, take it, right? Exactly. So after the lion season, then then what's next after that? Um, bears and turkeys. Bear and turkeys. Yep. A big bear to a little bitty turkey. <laughs> we we usually throw a few tags in our pockets when we're out chasing bears for turkeys, because we always seem to run into them. Yeah, and if you didn't have a tag, you wouldn't be able to shoot them. Exactly. So yeah. Take it back to camp and roast it over the fire, and you got fresh turkey. It's it's a win-win, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and for those that haven't had wild turkey, it's a completely different flavor. It, uh, you know, you, you get to go to the store, and the white meat's all white, and then your dark meat's dark. And uh, the wild turkeys I've had, the white meat is more of a tan uh, than, than white. And then the 
the dark meat is really dark. Yeah. It, my, like, I think a wild turkey is, it tastes more like your dark meat on a domesticated turkey. Yeah. A little more stringy, but it's that's just part of it. Yeah. And don't overcook it and cut it up and away you go. <laughs> yep. Throw, throw some bacon over it. Keeps get some moisture down into it. Yeah, yeah, that that sounds like a lot of lot of good meals there. Oh yeah, over your turkey and crisp up that bacon and get that nice bacon fat in that turkey. So there's not a lot of fat in them. No, there's hardly any fat in in a wild turkey. Not like your domestic ones that have lots of fat in it. All the injections and MSG. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of where you, you you look you grab a hand and you're just a ham and, and you're you're pouring out water after water after water and then there's like all this water's in it and then you, then you cook it, you've got all this more water comes out of it, and it's like, did I buy ham or water? Well, you definitely bought some water. <laughs> yeah. But some ham flavored water. <laughs> So what what is probably your your most favorite meat to eat? Um, I know you said you like whitetail, but that that's a hard one. It just depends on the moment. Like every time we go camping or on a guided trip, elk burgers. Everybody loves the elk burgers. Oh yeah. And then when I'm at home, I. Just go back to the basics of fried deer steaks and mac and cheese. <laughs> deer steaks, mac and cheese, huh? Exactly. That's my kids. That's one of their favorite meals. We grew up eating it and passed it on to them. <laughs> so do you, you use your mac and cheese out of a box or you have your own way of making it? Uh, I have no idea how my wife makes it. Oh, she makes it. Okay. I get the deer steaks, she gets the mac and cheese. Sounds like a, a winner there. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then uh, we do, like, take a lot of our neck roasts off our elk or deer and kind of make it like a jalapeno popper. Put the cream cheese in there, your jalapenos, and roll it out or cut it about half inch thick, roll it out or put it out. Smother the cream cheese, throw some bacon in there, some jalapenos, roll it back up and throw it on the smoker. And that is probably by far one of the best ways to eat it. That sounds good. So it really just depends on what you're in the mood for, where we're at, what we're doing. It's hard to say exactly what our favorite is. As long as long as you're uh, um, eating it and enjoying it and found a way to fix it, that's that's the sometimes the hard part when you first start out. I don't know. I first got you know got deer hunting and got my first deer. It the deer meat lasted us about a year before we finally ate it up because we didn't know best way to fix it and you know we didn't really know what to do with it. Um, but then it got to our, you know several years later um 
after I'd had my moose, the freezer was full. I had deer in there. There was full. Got another deer and I had no freezer face so, for it. So it's like, okay, started cutting up and sticking it in the dehydrator, making jerky out of it. And, and uh, I think about two weeks later, that deer was gone. <laughs> as soon as the jerky was done, my kid's like, is it ready yet? Yeah, okay. Start the next batch. And as they're eating that all up, so just kind of cycling through the dehydrator. And <laughs> so it lasted about two weeks. Yeah, we we usually go through about forty to fifty pounds of elk or deer jerky a year. <laughs> so you make it yourself, or do you send it out to be made? I send it out. I'm I'm usually too busy this time of year to do it myself. So I have a pretty good friend that's a butcher, and he does it all for me. Oh, that's good. At least you know you're getting your own meat back then. Oh yeah, he's he's very good about that, making sure I get exactly what I took to him. Do our sausage, our hamburger, our steaks, our roasts, and our jerky. That's kind of the the point. That's why I do a lot of my own processing because I, you know, the plants we had around here that the processors, you couldn't be sure you was getting your own meat back, and and you know, especially when I had a couple of friends when I took some in and. One guy took in a, a deer that was probably 30 or 40 pounds heavier. And they went to pick up the meat. At the same time, they got the same amount of meat back. It's just like, wait a minute. I brought in almost a 200-pound deer. And Jim was like 160 or 180 pounds. And it's like, why did I get the same amount of meat back? They're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, well, I grabbed some more meat and brought it back out to me. <laughs> That's also the same place that donates uh, hundreds of pounds of meat every year. I'll guarantee that people are not paying for the processing and leaving it or donating it. Uh, so you know they're shorting people. Oh, yeah. It's a big problem everywhere. Yeah, they're shorting you so they can have all this donation meat. You know, they make them look good. They're donating all this meat. It's like, how much meat did you kill yourself? You know, as opposed to how many actually donated it, and then how much extra are you giving away that should have been sent out to people that brought their meat in, their deer in. Now, so I start processing it myself. I know our first year, first year we processed, uh, cut up. My cousin had got a deer and said to my brother and I, "It's like, I'll give you half of it if you want to cut it up for me." So we had never cut one up. So we're trying to figure out, we're getting books and stuff. That was before the internet, you know? So, you know, we couldn't just like, okay, how to butcher deer. Uh, so we're figuring it out and cut it all up. And, you know, that was our first experience at cutting up a deer and, you know, just trying to figure it out and, you know, what, how do we want them? And now it's, it's easy to, to do. It's, you know, we hang them up, take the jammies off as Nugent says and cut them up. And, you know, we got where we'd, we'd hang them and, and we're just, cutting them off and taking the, the bones out. Next thing you know, we got the carcass hanging there and all the, all the meat's off and here's the carcass left and we've already deboned it and get really quick at that. And one thing that um, yeah, I, I've seen people take, so well, here's how to take your hide off with a, bowl, a golf ball and they wrap around, take the truck and just pull it off. Well, there's easier ways of doing that. We discovered it by accident one time. The, the deer is all all dirty and you wanted to hose it off. So we hose it all out and hose the hide all down and we hung it up. So pulling the hide just, just basically just 
fell off almost. It had loosened the hide up off of the meat and it come off really easy. So after that, we started soaking them down before we did any of them. We'd hang them, we'd soak them. So the hide comes off so much quicker. We use an air compressor. Just oh, punch yeah. air and just blow the air in there and it just it just falls off after you get that done. Yeah. Anything to loosen that hide off of there. But yeah, the, the air compressor, that you have to try that one. That one's a real quick. Yeah. <laughs> real quick. You know, I have to I have to get an air presser close enough to it I can do it. <laughs> yeah. Grab you grab you a hundred foot hose and go over there. And... Yeah. Or just bring it out and run extension cord to the air compressor. <laughs> I yeah. got a small one I can carry around. I got another one that's on, on a cart that's got wheels, so I just have to pull it off and, and plug it in. And so for our house here, the outside plug is also uh, the light runs on it and the refrigerator runs on it. You know, I haven't rewired that part of the house yet. <laughs> the other part's done, but not the kitchen dining room area. So I'll be out in the garage and have the compressor on. Uh, it stopped. I was like, oh, man, pop the breaker. The refrigerator got no power now. So I'm going to go running downstairs, put the breaker and go back out. And I got a generator now. So what I'm do if I'm going to run that, I just pull the generator and fire it up and run it off the generator. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah. When I get around to it, I'll, I'll run a, a, you know, a 220 out there so that I can run welder on it and stuff like that. But right now I got other things that's on my list of to-dos before <laughs> I run out there for that. Yeah, you guys should be pretty good active with your deer hunt right now, aren't you? Yeah, that's we we just got done with rifle season here last weekend, and and archery's still going. Goes to the end of the year, um, starting I think it's tomorrow's thirty. The first anyway, December first is muzzleloader for the whole month of December here in Nebraska. So we can use the muzzleloader or the bow. That that's on one of my to do lists. Is head to Nebraska and get me one of your guys' monster muleys. Yeah, you'll be going out in the, the western part, not in the plain plains and sand hills. And yeah, they're they're completely they're they're, they're a spot in stock. You, you don't just sit for them either. Yeah, oh, I'm I'm pretty excited for that one. I think I'm that's in my two year two years from now. Is Nebraska muleys, so. Yeah, that that'd be fun. There's there's a lot of lot of land out there. If you get in that, that part of the state, there's a lot of public land out there as well. And of course, then you got you know private property too. But I'm over to the other end of the state. <laughs> well, if you're anything like me, you drive. You'll drive everywhere for them. <laughs> yeah, I I we got to look for a little bit more land. I've got uh, the two spots I have right now. They they don't hold a lot of deer. The one is mostly travel corridor. You do see a little bit during the day, uh, but it's mostly a travel corridor at night. Um, I actually uh, pulled some video off about midnight at night. There were two little small bucks kept walking around. And uh, and this one night, I come, they come in, they walk through, they come back, and then they start facing each other and kind of halfway playing at sparring and, you know, sticking their nose on each other. And then and then they they, they kind of quit, and then they just walked off together. <laughs> Two little ones. <laughs> I posted on the YouTube, my YouTube channel, and 
it's like I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, kind of middle of the night, you know, they're they're not really shooter bucks, they're they're a little small. We do have a nice buck that runs around there once in a while, but all at night, you know, right around the midnight time frame and you can't shoot them. Uh, I have to try one of those. Uh, can you guys use feeders out there? Uh, up to about 30 days, I think, before season starts. Hmm. I, As I, I say, think about that, trying to make a... Um, make them a little spot, a little bedding area where they can kind of be protected, you know, like sleeping during the day and get them there in a day and then, uh, you know, put up a, a feeder, you know, up until, you know, just before season that goes off during the day. And, and that would be, you know, in morning, morning and evening or something, you know, to get them to come there, um, you know, in the middle of the summertime, you know, a little bit later summer, they've got corn or beans to eat. So they're not going to really come to a feeder because they got, Food All the food. At. so it, it's you know before the grasses start turning green like now um well actually not now after the in january middle of january after a late rifle season ends you know then he could put a feeder up and and get them coming into um getting used to coming in because they're going to find the food get them coming there during the day That's that would be the what I would do is try to get him to come in the day. Yeah. Set an alarm on there where it goes off at eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Last year on the cameras in February, I caught a group of them come in in the morning and then like next night they was there um, during the day. That's pretty much mostly all the I caught on my cameras. That was the only time I caught them during the daylight. <laughs> And it's February, after season's over. <laughs> of course, that's the only you way know, they did it. Two, two different times they were there during the day, one in the morning, one in the evening. And like now, well, you know, so I know that's not a good spot. But they do come through during the day where I have my ladder stand, but on the property to the south of us that we don't have permission to hunt. So uh, this summer, I'm going to try and see if we get permission to hunt over there, and I'll just shoot clear a shooting lane. Like if I'd have yeah. sat in my my ladder stand this last rifle season, I could have shot the one, but it was where I couldn't shoot anyway. So we never cleared all the shooting lane because I couldn't shoot over there anyway. So I didn't clear the lane. Yeah, there's one one come running through and stops. So I got I got my camera with me on a tripod and I just I started the camera so you know watch it down there, and then. It run off, and just a bit later, I seen three more deer come running through the field. You know, those deer were running through the field, so this would run off too. I'm like, oh man, something spooked those other three, <laughs> or maybe something spooked the four of them, and they, they just thought it was safe there until they come running through. And I'm like, it's all they seen. <laughs> but it was during the day, in the morning, so they do go through there. That off that cornfield is where they do. It's kind of a travel route where they do come through there. Um, I just got to get them to come on to this property. And, and that's where I was, I was talking to one of the guys in one of the podcasts. I learned a lot on these podcasts, you know, I don't know about anybody else, but I learned a lot. So, uh, but he was saying, you know, just take some dead branches and make kind of a little circle with a little place to get them so they can kind of hide. And then it'd be the kind of more turn it into like a bedding area. 
and then how they'll be there during the day. So they'll be coming there in the morning and leaving in the afternoon, you know, when they go out roaming around at night. So I was like, oh, that that's something we'll, we'll have to do once we get back in there when after the see. I don't want to start doing all that during the season. No, you'll push everything out of there if you do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of sneak in, sneak out. Don't make any more noise than you have to. Yep. Bill, it's been great talking with you. Learned quite a bit and uh, uh, kind of interesting all the different animals you have to hunt there in Utah. We, we don't, don't have quite that many types of animals here. We have bobcats and we have uh, some lions. We, we've got the bobcats, the lions, bears. We got almost everything here. So, Yeah, for a long time, the game parks never admit there's lions in here in, in Nebraska. And one place I was hunting, he said, yeah, we've seen tracks in the 60s uh, for them. You just didn't see them because there's enough forest area. Well, I've seen them a couple of times. And then until one got hit on the highway, then they had to admit that there was mountain lions here in, in the eastern part of Nebraska. <laughs> no choice. You've got a dead one here. So there's there's dead one. There's got to be more. Yeah, we, we get that with the wolves here. They they claim they're not here, but we'll get tracks and few people get pictures here and there and they just claim they're big coyotes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> so if there's no season on them, shooting it's like, okay, is this a big coyote? <laughs> or is this a wolf? And it's just a big dog. <laughs> this is the big coyote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's been it's been great talking with you. Learned a bunch, and and for those that are, are still listening, thanks for listening. And just remember, we'll, we'll put some descriptions in the um, in the description. We'll put some contact information to get a hold of you if you want to do a, a hunt in Utah. Um, now you know a person that can take you out really good at what he does and uh, we'll just leave a description in here uh, to get a hold of him and just remember uh, you can watch this on my youtube channel learn to fix it yourself or in the arch talk one on facebook group you can also listen to it on spotify as well as audible and my name is Roy canterbury i'm in the house today on arch talk 101 with chad stevens and we've had a great time talking hunting <laughs> so we'll see you on the next one See everybody later.